0: Well, good morning church. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you're watching online, we're grateful to have you here. Isn't it good to worship together? So good. And we have a faithful God, don't we? It's so great. Now today we're going to be talking about a, a topic that I think um, has uh, real significance for a lot of people in this room. And um, uh, I think it will be helpful for us to have uh, this discussion from the passage that we're going to be looking at today. And I'll just begin by saying this, if you are here and you've been a follower of Jesus for quite some time, and not everyone here is or has been following Jesus for very long, but if you've grown up in the church or you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, it's very likely that you're familiar with certain geographical sites in the Bible, And if you were to trace Jesus' life and I were to mention a certain geographical site, my guess is by the mere mention of the geographical site, it means something to you. So if I say, for instance, uh, Bethlehem, it means something to you, and it's very likely that it just brings to your mind the birth of Jesus. If I say Nazareth, it's very likely, if you're familiar with the Bible, that you go, oh, that's the, you know, where Jesus grew up. That's part of his formative years of growth and development. If I say Capernaum, you may think, oh, that's the, the, kind of the home base of Jesus' ministry when he was uh, in the area of the Sea of Galilee. If I say Bethany, you go, oh, that's kind of a place that Jesus preferred just outside of Jerusalem. If I say Jerusalem, it means something to you. So just by the mere mention of certain geographical sites, it means something to you. And there's two geographical sites that are tremendously important because they come with the meaning of suffering. One is very well known and one less known. One has been deeply explored and and, um, really tried to, to be understood. The other one has been less explored and maybe perhaps even less understood. The first site is Golgotha, the place of the skull, also called Calvary, the hill in which Jesus was crucified. And so when I say that geographical site, it's hard not to... Picture Golgotha, Calvary, the hill on which Christ died, without uh, considering and thinking about the tremendous suffering and agony that he felt physically. But there's another place of suffering as well. And like I said, one that's a less known and less understood perhaps as well. And that's Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, is the place where Jesus uh, suffered. But it was a different kind of suffering. If I was to say Golgotha, you think, oh, physical suffering, death on the cross. But when I say Gethsemane, that's emotional suffering. That's where he suffered emotionally. And my guess is if you're here and you have suffered a bit in both zones, that you might say, yeah, but it's the emotional stuff that really is a challenge. There's the physical and the emotional, but sometimes it's just the emotional stuff that gets to us. So it's important for us to understand Gethsemane, isn't it? If that's where Christ suffered emotionally. The word Gethsemane uh, means uh, olive press. And so it comes with it, this picture, right, of a machine where you bring a bunch of olives to it and it tr- puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the olives and as a result of all the pressure that's on the olives, what, the olive oil is squeezed out. And that's the picture of what Christ experienced at Gethsemane. He experienced a tremendous amount of pressure in this, the squeeze emotionally in that moment. And I know that you and I can't compare our suffering to Christ. But many of you understand what it's like to feel that kind of pressure. Maybe perhaps today you're in that kind of a zone of pressure, where you feel your life just being squeezed. You're in your own Gethsemane. And I hope that this passage is a particular help to you today. See, the Gethsemane, like I said, is a place of being pressure and Uh, Many times when we feel A tremendous amount of pressure What we need to do is Depressurize, right? When we feel lots of pressure We just need to depressurize If you were to come to me and said Scott, how are you feeling today? And I was to say to you Well, you know, I just need to depressurize You might think to yourself Well, that's kind of an odd answer (laughs) And you might laugh a little bit But you wouldn't say much more But if I was to say I'm feeling depressed. My guess is, you might say, well, that's not good. But really, we're talking about the same thing. When we experience a tremendous amount of pressure, what we need is to depressurize, and we feel depressed. And so that's what we are going to be talking about today. This issue of pressure, this issue of depression, That comes to our lives and I um, Know a little something about depression. I know about depression personally and I also know about depression um, Because there's people who are close to me who also deal with depression And my guess is there's many people here who understand that as well There's many people here who understand depression personally And even if you don't really understand it and fully feel it personally you live near someone who does And so in both cases, it's important for us to know a little bit more about this issue of depression and how Jesus deals with it. In fact, this whole summer, we've been going through a series, and I've just invited you to come along with me in kind of a journey of following along Jesus, just chronologically, as he encounters people who face challenges. But today's challenge is a challenge that Jesus himself faces. He himself faced the challenge of depression. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we get to see uh, how he responded to that, and we can learn from him. But we also get to see what he offers to us, and we can grow from that as well. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to turn to the look of the passage with me, um, because I do think it'll be tremendously helpful. It's found in Matthew chapter 26. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully receive the handout on your way in here. It has the passage that's printed for you. But what I'd like to do is is, um, read this passage in its entirety. We'll come back and look at it together. And I want to invite you to please stand for the reading of Scripture. Just a reminder that we stand under the authority of God's Word in our life. And so this is just that moment for us to listen and hear uh, from, from God and His Word today. So Matthew 26, beginning of verse 36 to 46. I know there's a lot of sixes in there, but just bear with me. Matthew 26, verse 36, this is what it says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me Starting back at verse 36, we see where Jesus comes into this place called Gethsemane. It says this in verse 36, when Jesus went to his with his Jesus then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." So Jesus goes to Gethsemane and he brings his disciples along with him. And we know from Luke's presentation that this was a preferred place. Jesus would go to Gethsemane. It was, um, uh, you know, common for him to take his disciples with him. But I think this part, honestly, is a a bit touching to me, that he's going to Gethsemane and he knows he's going there to contemplate the cross. That in just a few hours, he's headed to the cross. He's going to be crucified. And in this moment, He also wants his disciples with him. And I find that touching because it's one thing to consider the fact that we need his companionship, but it's a whole other thing to think that, oh yeah, he wants companionship in this moment as well. So this is what is taking place. They're coming to this place of Gethsemane. Then verse 37, it says this, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And I highlight the first part because it's then that Jesus takes kind of a subgroup. He takes Peter and the sons of Zebedee with him a a little bit further ahead. And Peter, you may be familiar with, the sons of Zebedee, um, I like to call them the Zebedee boys rather than the sons of Zebedee. Um, Sons of Zebedee sounds kind of like a royal title, the Sons of Zebedee. But really, they're the Zebedee boys is kind of really what it comes down to. And they kind of have that maybe reputation that's... Far less royal, a little more ruckus, if if you know what I mean. Um, Maybe you've had those, you know, kids in your neighborhood. They're all, you know, born in the same, you know, part of the same family group, and they are always getting in trouble. And you see them, you're like, oh there go the Robertson kids again. That's kind of the feel, you know. And the Zebedee boys are kind of like that. They leave awake wherever they go, and so that's part of the group, though. This this little subgroup that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. That's who the three are. And it's interesting. This group that he takes with him a little bit further. Into the, into the Gethsemane is the same three that he also brought with him when he healed Jairus' daughter. The, the, and he, he brought Jairus' daughter back to life. So they got to see that. And these are the three that he also took um, on the, the mount where Jesus was transfigured. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 17. And so these three guys got a, a front row view of seeing Jesus be uh, in his glory, they saw him in his full deity. His full glory. But now in this moment, they're seeing him not in his glory, they're seeing him in his grief. Not so much the deity, but the humanity of Jesus. And both are important, enormously important. And these guys are seeing both sides of this in this moment. And so he brings them along, and then it says this in verse 37, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful and troubled. And if I could... uh, translate these two words a little bit more aggressively, I would say this, that he was depressed and confused. He was depressed and confused. And that's really what he's feeling, and that's really what the Greek words mean. But, I, I, you know, you look at all the translations in this part here, they'll translate it differently, but they kind of avoid the word depressed. They'll use lots of other words, but they don't use that, 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 that word. Now, they'll all admit that that's what's going on here, and that's what the word means. They might put it in a footnote down below, but it's really hard to say Jesus is depressed because that's depressing, right? So it's, it's one of those things that's like, that is what's happening here. He is depressed, and when I say confused, it's because he says he's troubled in his mind, and many of you have felt that before as well. You've been troubled in your mind when you're depressed, and here's, here's how he is feeling. Now, this is an important thing, and again, we do this in the same way. We, we try to come up with more palatable ways to say things that we're really feeling. If we're angry, we don't want to admit that we're angry, so what do we say? Oh, I'm frustrated right now. You know, that maybe sounds better. Or instead of saying I'm mad, you say, well, I'm intensely passionate. That's what I am. It's like, <laughs> okay, you're just mad, so let's just be honest. And I do that sometimes in my own life with depression. There's, it's easier for me to say I'm bummed right now that it is for me to say that i'm depressed but the same thing is going on and so that's what's going on here jesus is depressed and he's confused and there's an important bit of information understanding that that's what this means and that that's what's going on with jesus and this is an important thing and it's helpful for you to hear and i'll just say this that this is this is something you take note of that this is what uh, when it comes to depression depression is not sin depression is not sin this is an important thing for us to get. And those of you who don't deal with their struggle or battle with depression, you're like, duh, of course. But those who battle with depression, this is an important thing for you to recognize. Because those who battle with depression also battle with the emotions that come with depression. And they feel guilty for it. They feel guilty as if I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be able to manage all of this stuff instead of feeling depressed, and sometimes it's not just the depression, it's the depressed feelings about the depression that makes us more depressed. Does that make sense? And so this is an important thing to get. How do I know it's not sin? Because Jesus was depressed, and Jesus didn't sin. So it's an important thing for us to get and it's an important thing for us to understand. For some of you who deal with depression, I don't want you to feel guilty. You maybe need to write this down, permanent ink, tattoo it someplace, review it, go, it's not sin. I just need to have that this be um, front and center because Jesus was depressed and he did not sin. So what is depression? The, the, the question might be, well, the depression is not sin. It is a symptom. Depression is a symptom. It's a symptom of what? It means that you're, it's a symptom that you're so highly pressurized that, 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 um, that, that you need to depressurize. That's the, that's the, the idea there. That there's so, there's so much going on. You're feeling the squeeze in so many different ways that there needs to be a depressurization, that you're depressed because of all the pressure that you are under. And because when we feel pressure, lots of things can go kind of awry and lots of different things can be challenges. That's why there's lots of... Um, Tools for depression, lots of solutions to deal with suppression and depression, and many of them are helpful for us. If you find yourself running really hard, and because of the pressure in your life, and because of the pressure in your life, you're going so fast and you're running so hard, you're finding yourself getting less and less sleep, guess what can happen? You can get depressed. So, what's the sophisticated therapy for depression in that circumstance? Take a nap that's it. Sometimes you're rolling and you're going and you're going and sometimes because you're going so fast and there's so much pressure in your life, you don't take time to eat or you don't take time to eat well. Well, guess what happens when you don't do that? You can get depressed. And guess what the sophisticated therapy for in that circumstance is? Eat a meal steak. There you go. Eat a nice steak. All right. Amen to that. Eat and eat a good meal. You don't believe me? Just look at uh, Elijah, God's prophet in First Kings when he was depressed to the point of suicide. Guess what God's solution was? He brought him a meal. That, that's, that's powerful. So we just have to, to recognize that sometimes there's different ways we, ha- we have to deal with it. Sometimes it's not something internal, but it's, it's external. Sometimes we feel and face depression because uh, not just because of the stuff that's going on inside, but because of the people that are around us. And many of you understand that. Many of you are living and have lived in very stressful family environments. And within that that environment over time, it can create a tremendous amount of pressure in your life and you can find yourself depressed. Many of you know what it's like to be in work environments where there's a whole lot of stress piled on and you can find yourself in in that environment very, very much depressed and needing to depressurize. Sometimes it's not um physiological is sometimes it's also um uh, there's there's that interpersonal side but sometimes it's not um it's also internal and and it's biochemical and so you know sometimes when you're dealing with depression um the best solution for you is to go to a doctor sometimes when you're dealing with depression the best solution for you if there's there's um, psychological roots is to go see a therapist that's good and you don't have to feel guilty going. Why? Because depression is not a sin. Listen, if your teeth are crooked, what do you do? You get them fixed. And if you're dealing with, with depression, guess what? It's okay to go seek help. And there's lots of different ways that you can seek help, and it's okay. It's all right. It's not sin. That's what you need to, do, to tell yourself. If you're going to get, get help in some form, some manner, just remind yourself hey, it ain't sin and it'll perk you right up. You'll feel a lot better. Just, just recognizing that and saying, okay, I'm going to go, and this is, this is an important thing. So it's a, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of, um, of importance for just to understand that and to understand that Jesus felt this kind of pressure. And when you think about Jesus, you're thinking to yourself, oh, of course, he's going to the cross. Why wouldn't he be depressed? Why wouldn't he feel the squeeze of emotional pressure in this moment? And it says, like I said, his, it's sorrowful and troubled. Then that troubled is troubled of mind. And maybe you've been in that spot where you're depressed and you just feel like you're losing it. And at the same time you feel like you're losing it, you feel guilty for losing it. And you feel bad and you feel like you're letting God down and other people down because you can't manage it. But listen, this is part of that emotional strain and Jesus is feeling it. You're not alone. Jesus understands it in his humanity, that kind of pressure and that kind of stress. Then, Go ahead and um, look at the next verse with me. In verse 38, it says this. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's basically saying, right? I'm so depressed I could die. That's kind of how he's feeling. That's the raw side of it. And this is an amazing thing because it's, it's one thing to feel it. It's a whole other thing to say it. He says it. And it's interesting, he says it to these guys. I know that sometimes the question that many people have is, well, I'm feeling this way. Who am I supposed to share it with? And I think we can learn something from Jesus here in this passage. You don't have to share it with everyone. First of all, not everyone is interested what's going on in your life, all right? So just, just know that. But you can share it with people who are close to you, people you trust. Jesus, at the beginning of this week, when everyone is shouting, Hosanna, 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 he doesn't stop them and say, oh man, you guys, you don't understand. I know what's coming and it's starting to make me feel depressed, right? It doesn't work. He doesn't do it there. He brings these guys who are close to him and he expresses it, but there's power in being able to express how you're feeling with people who are close to you that you trust. There's power in that. And then not only does he express it, but it says, stay here and keep watch with me. There's something very powerful about companionship. So there's telling, but there's also saying, I've got to be with you. And I want companionship. And there's so much power in companionship, and I just, I can't stress that enough. In my job as a pastor, uh, so often I get the phone call, I get the, the, hey, can you come? I've lost someone or someone in the family. There's been a tragedy. And every single time I'm going there, I'll tell you something. I feel incredibly inadequate. And and it doesn't really matter how many times I've done it, I still am thinking to myself, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Because what do you say when someone who's experienced a great tragedy or a great loss? But time and time again, I have people who will come back and say to me, hey, it was so great that you were there. Thank you so much for being there. And I'm thinking to myself, I was there and not knowing what to do, concerned I'm in the way. But for them, it's powerful because you're there. But what we tend to do is, is, is we, we are scared of those moments. Someone's marriage blows up, and you're like, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should be there. So we stay away. No, go be with them. And you don't have to know what to say. In fact, don't say anything at all. Just be with them. There's someone who gets the diagnosis from the doctor that they don't want to hear, and you're like, oh, man, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. So you just kind of back off. Don't. Be with them. Step in and be with them. Have that companionship. Again, you don't have to know what to say. In fact, don't say anything at all. That's, that's, the, that's part of the power of that companionship. Be with them. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's saying, stay, stay close. Watch with me. Pray with me. I need you here. I want that companionship. It's powerful. And I'll just say this. I know that sometimes we want to know what to say, and, and I, I'm going to speak speci- especially to the guys for a moment. Um, there's a temptation to want to fix. Don't do that. Listen. Listen. And the women in your life, they want to share things. They just want you to listen. They don't want you to fix it. And can I tell you a little secret? They don't think you can fix it anyway. Okay? <laughs> so, just, All right. Just listen. That's what they're looking for. That's what. That's what. That's what we need to do. So there's just this power in that. Anyway, now verse 39. Glad you're paying attention. All right, going a little farther. He fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, "My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will." So going a little bit farther, he falls with his face to the ground. So you know the agony that he's feeling. He is under tremendous pressure. There is no way to avoid the fact that he is feeling. Depressed that there's this emotional weight that he is carrying. He is being pressed in this place. He falls to the ground. He prays, and it's an interesting prayer. He says, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I want out. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want out. And guess what? Without a shred of guilt. I think that's important for us to hear. He's saying, I want out. And he's saying his honest feelings as a man in his humanity. And you may be saying, Well, wait a minute, isn't he God? Isn't wasn't he, you know, with the Godhead, you know, the eternal Son of God in the you know predestined foreknowledge of God? This was the plan, right? He would go to the cross. Yes, Jesus was a part of all that. But now here he is in his humanity, and he's saying, God, I want out. He's feeling that pressure. And I just think that's important for some of us to recognize it's okay to say that. And if you're here and you haven't been a follower of Christ very long or you're just trying to, you're on the front end of things, can I say something to you that maybe no one else has said to you yet? It's this, that sometimes in life, you're going to be in spots where you're going to say to God, God, I want out. You're going to be in places and spaces where you're going to say, God, not this. You're going to say, God, not now. You're going to say, God, not him. Those are going to be real moments, real spots that you're in. And guess what? It's okay to say it without guilt. That's what Jesus does. He says, God, I want out. But listen to the other part of his prayer. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. So he's saying, here's what I want, but I still want what you want. There's this surrender. There's this humility. Now you know the tension. Do you feel that? God, here's what I want, but I also want what you want. And I'm wrestling And I feel the squeeze. And that's real raw stuff that we feel and experience as well. Then, verse 40, it says this. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. This is interesting. Um, He found them sleeping. And he says, couldn't you men, so he's talking plural, y'all, couldn't you all keep watch with me for one hour? Then who's he talking to? He asked Peter. Interesting right? But if you know this story, you know that just before this, Peter was saying, okay, Jesus, listen, if all these guys abandon you, I will never abandon you. If all these guys deny you, man, guess what? I will be there for you. I will die for you. But we all know the story, right? <laughs> he, <it wasn't, laughs> he, he did deny, and um, Jesus is just saying, just stay and pray with me. That's what I'm looking for. And so it's an interesting thing. He's, he's looking at them. He's looking at them, but he's speaking to Peter a little bit. But he really is talking to all of them. And in a certain sense, he's talking to the church um, as well. He's saying, listen, pray. That's what you got to do. I want to invite you. I want to encourage you. Pray. And this is the, the kind of the, the, the emphasis that he's saying here, and he's really pushing Peter into this as well. And it's part of it is to also help us understand that um, we don't have it within ourselves, our strength, because sometimes I think as Christians, we think if we have enough intensity and enough zeal and we just muster up all of our strength, we will stand with Jesus till the end. But do you see what's wrong with that? It's about me, my strength, my power. And that's what Peter was saying. Jesus, all those other guys, they're weak. I'm strong. I'll be with you to the end. But the power is not in Peter. The power is in God, and it's found in prayer. And that's what Jesus invites us to. Look at the next verse. It says this, 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he says, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. And the Greek word fall is to plunge, dive. So that you don't dive into temptation, watch and pray. And this is a powerful thing. Jesus is saying, listen, it's not your strength that's gonna show off your loyalty to me. It's gonna be your prayer life. That's where your power source is found that you're able to be loyal and strong. It's not in mustering up your intensity. It's coming to the Father in connection through faith. That's where we begin to have the strength to live out the life that we are called to live. And we know this because he's saying, watch out. I want you to pray so you don't fall into temptation. And what was the temptation for Peter? He denied Jesus three times. But before that, what did he do? he napped three times, okay? So, Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to have challenges. Pray so that you don't, you can go with in my power, not your power. That's the, that's the emphasis here. And really, he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, This is an important part, too. Many people, uh, there's a lot of debate over the spirit. What's the, what spirit is he referring to? Is he referring to the human spirit? That's, um, Willing or is it God's spirit? I think it's God's spirit because I don't see anything in this passage that would say the human spirit is so strong. Um, I think it's God's spirit that's willing, but it's our human nature and our brokenness that's weak. And that's kind of how I, I, I see— I, I, I see this uh, verse and what Jesus is saying. But then verse 42, it says this. He went away a second time and he prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So he goes away and he prays. Now this is his second prayer. And if you compare the two prayers, you'll notice that the prayer has changed. It's shifted. It's gone from God I want out to God I want what you want. There is a shift there is a change. And this is a, a powerful part of prayer, by the way. Prayer is not so much um, us telling God um, how he needs to see our point of view, um, but it's, it's about coming to God and saying, God, help me to see your point of view. That's, that's the important part. And it's that through that process of prayer and surrendering and, and saying, God, I'm submitting to you, that he changes us. He lear- we, we change, we discover what God wants for us instead of what we think we, we need to have and what we want. And this is an important aspect of prayer. And because so many people want to find God's will, and sometimes we have this concept of finding God's will, like finding a quarter on the street, and you're like, oh, I found it, put it in my pocket, good, that's what I've got. But biblically speaking, you know, in terms of dis- you know, discovering God's will, it's more uh, about seeking than it is about finding Um, It's not a quarter that you put in your pocket, got it, found God's will, I'm good to go. It's more about a compass, and you're watching the compass, and you're saying, okay, it's veering this way, I need to veer this way. Okay, wait, wait, it's going a little more, I got to keep on going. It's a seeking of God's will. It's a responsiveness to Him versus something I just found, got it, here I go, I'm good to go. It's I seek God, and as I continue to be responsive to God in my prayer, in this relationship with Him, and I'm like surrendering my life to Him, He guides us towards his will. It's a journey. It's a process, and we see Jesus saying, I'm submissive. I'm coming to you, and God guides him into his will because he says that may this cup be taken away, but uh, uh, um, is, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away uh, unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's ready to go, and I'll just stop and just say the cup. What's the cup? You may ask the cup really is about um, God's judgment on, on, on sin, uh, his wrath against a sin. And Jesus is really at this point saying something that's so powerful. He's saying, I'm willing to take upon myself God's wrath, God's judgment for the sins of the world. I will drink that cup. I will take that judgment on the cross. Pay the penalty for the sins of the world so that those who come to Jesus in faith can receive forgiveness and life. Because he took the punishment that we deserved. Isn't that amazing? And when you realize this is what Jesus has done for me, what's the wise response? The wise response when knowing that Jesus is willing to take the judgment for my sin is the wise response to say, I'm just going to, you know, get there with God and just kind of, you know, it on on my own, you know, just take it as it is with me and God and my sin. Here we go. Or is the wise response to say, I'm going to take Jesus' offer to be the forgiver of my sins, to take the punishment on my behalf so that I can come with an advocate. That's wise, and that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the good news. If you've never received it, I invite you to turn and trust Jesus in this incredible offer that he is making for all who would turn to him and trust in his work. So he's saying, this is, so this is what he's done. Then verse 43 says this. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so Matthew's, you know, helping them understand, hey, they got sleepy, they, they dozed off again. And I kind of picture them sort of like kids at New Year's Eve, the kids who are saying, I'll stay up all night, I'll stay up all night, I've got this, I've got this, and then 10 minutes later, they're crashed on the couch, you know what I'm talking about? Um, and I think that's kind of how the disciples are. And it says that their eyes are heavy, that they sleep, and really, it also makes me wonder um, if the disciples aren't depressed too. Because this has been a lot on them as well. The week started out with hosannas, and here they are on the edge of a crucifixion. And there's been a whole lot going on in between. And do you know what the number one, um, you know, symptom of depression is? Unexplained fatigue. Unexplained fatigue. Some of you here today just realized you may be depressed because you get that. And I'll just say two things to you first of all, welcome. It's all right. You're, you're, well, it's all right. You know, it, it just, you're in good company, exactly, if that's how you're feeling. And then the second thing, I just want to remind you again, it's not sin, and I just think that we, we can't hear that enough. So their, their eyes become heavy. They're falling asleep. Verse 44 says this, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing thing. So then he goes back. So the disciples, they keep falling asleep on him. So Jesus just goes back to um, God the Father, who is consistent, who is our help. And that's good for us to know, too. Um, It's not a surprise to us that people let us down, and they'll fail us. But guess what? God doesn't. He's consistent. He knows. He's faithful. Jesus goes back, and he prays a third time, saying the same thing. Then verse 45 says this. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. One of the most encouraging words in this verse for me is the word returned. That Jesus returned to the disciples. These guys that keep falling asleep on him, guess what he does? He goes back to them. It could have been easy for him to say, guys, I'm frustrated with you. I'm done. You keep falling asleep later. Exactly. I'm on my own. I'm just going to go on my own because you can't do it. But he comes back. And I think this is encouraging because it means that Jesus still wants his prayerless followers. And maybe that's an encouragement to some of the prayerless followers in here today. Are you with me? You understand that? You feel that? Jesus still wants his prayerless followers. He returns to them. He wants them to be with him. He wants to continue to guide them and lead them. And it's a powerful thing. He says, are you still sleeping? Look, the hours come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. So he says, it's time. I'm going to... This, it's, all, it's all moving forward. And we know that the next verse there, verse 46, says this, rise and again, let us go. He wants to be with them. He doesn't abandon them. He says, doesn't say, I'm out of here. Here comes my betrayer. There's just so much power in this passage. And there's many things that are so helpful because it helps us see that Jesus was depressed. Again, depression is not sin. It's a symptom. It also helps us understand that we can come to him. He understands how we feel. He gets us, and he invites us to be with him, even when we falter, even when we struggle. And he invites us to pray. That's the power that he wants us to get. There's a story that I love. It's a story of a, a store uh, owner who uh, you know tacked up on his the the kind of the front of his store. This is you know m- many years ago, but it's tacked up on a store. You know, puppies for sale. His dog had had puppies. He wanted to sell them. So puppies for sale. And of course, a sign like that is going to attract kids. And it wasn't long after that that a little kid comes to a store and says, I, I, how much are you selling the puppies for? I want to see the puppies. Where are the puppies? And he says, how much are you sell them for? And the shop owner says, you know, I'm selling them for you know, 30 to $50. And the little boy says, oh, I've got $2.37. $2.37. Got and the guy's like, okay, kind of smiles at him, and the boy's like, can I see the puppies? And of course, you know, what do you do in that moment? so he, he, he kind of whistles back, and you, you see the dog, you know, the mama dog come, and there's little, five little bundles of fur kind of like following along and tripping to themselves. And as they were coming down the aisle towards the little boy and the, the shop owner, there was one dog that was lagging behind. It was slower than the rest, um, limping. And that's the dog that this little boy was fixated on. This little boy was staring at that dog, fixated on this little puppy that was kind of limping and, and lagging behind. And he asked the, the store owner, so what's, what's the deal with this dog? And the, the store owner says, well, the vet says that he has a, you know, a, a hip socket issue and he'll probably never recover. He'll always have a limp. He won't ever be able to be as fast or to run as, as quickly as the other dogs. And, and the little boy was like just fixated, fascinated with this, this, this little puppy. And the little boy says, that's the one I want. And the shop owner says, oh, well, well, listen, you, you, I don't know if you want that one. In fact, if you want that one, I'll just, I'll probably just give that puppy to you because that puppy, you know, is is not going to be um, as active as all the others. And the little boy was offended and said, no, this puppy's worth the same as all the other puppies. In fact, I'll give you my $2.37 and I'll Come back week after week with 50 more cents until it's all paid, paid in full. And the shop owner says, are you sure you want this puppy? This puppy's not gonna be able to run and play with you like all the other puppies. And without saying a word, the little boy lifts up his pant leg and as he does, you see a metal brace around his leg. And he says, yeah, I understand. I just think this puppy needs to be with someone who understands him. And there's something powerful about that because that's what Jesus does for us. He understands us. Yes, full deity, full humanity. Yes, the glory, but then there's the real grief, the real low, the depression. He understands how we feel, where we're coming from, and he wants us anyway, and he wants to walk with us through it. Listen, I don't know, you know, uh, the kind of what God has in store for maybe you, you in your story with depression, and if I could snap my fingers and take it away, I would. But listen, I do know this, that God is near the brokenhearted, that we have a God who wants us, a God who understands us, a God who um, cares for us. And we have a God who, listen, if God can take the betrayal in a garden, the worst betrayal in human history, and he can redeem it, guess what? I do know this. God can redeem your suffering as well. So let's take a moment and let's thank him for that. And let's do what Jesus modeled for us and what he asked us to do, which is just to come to him in prayer. So let's pray together now. God, we do want to just say thank you for being a God who understands. And Lord, when we think about your suffering, we see the physical side, but there is the real emotional side as well. And Lord, with that, we also recognize that you know us and you understand our feelings. We thank you, Father, for the fact that if you were depressed, then it's not sin. And yet with you, we can begin to address it. And so we're thankful for that. Thankful for the fact that when you went to the cross and you suffered so greatly, you did it for our benefit. You took upon yourself the punishment, the penalty for our sin, our guilt, so that we could be, through faith in your work, we can find forgiveness and we can find uh, freedom and healing in this life. And God, we pray that we'd be able to experience that with joy and gratitude because of who you are and all that you have done for us. In your name, amen.